You're a failure. And that's okay. Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Alicia. And, and we're, we're failures, failures too. too. We take a walk back through people's failures and relive the mistakes they made so we all can have more clarity on how to be a better human. Welcome, everyone, to another resilient episode of the 2020 Perspective. I'm one of your co-hosts, uh, Dan Newman from Learn to Scale, and I'm joined by my other co-host, Alicia. Hey, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm jazzed. Hello, everyone. My name's Alicia, and I'm the other co-host of the 2020 Perspective podcast, where we talk to people about their juicy failures. Oh, and we have so many failures in the pipeline. I like... I'm going to a little forecast something we're going to talk about today is I am so excited to talk about the interviews that we have in the pipeline, but I can't talk too much about it because they're still like under development. I'm very excited for them. Uh, so today is a very special day because we have a guest joining us. And um, Alicia, you you actually sought out and found this particular individual. How did you how did you find uh, our guest for today? Great question. Um, probably through my stalking people on LinkedIn and <laughs> finding different speakers. And I'm really, really into this idea right now about resilience because it's so much, it's so important more than ever to show resilience and to build resilience in our teams and in our leaders. And so I stumbled upon the resilience expert that we'll be talking to today. I know. I'm so excited. And once you showed me who we got to have a conversation with, I like lost my marbles for a hot second. Um, so I'm very excited to have basically the foremost international expert in resilience here with us talking about resilience because failure and resilience, they, they go really well together. Yeah. So in hand. Yeah. And and today we, we figured the big question that we're going to ask our guest and also anyone listening live or listening to the re podcast recording is asking, how do people access resilience in their day-to-day -day life? Well, we got somebody who could talk to that. So <laughs> Dr. Taryn Marie Stayskull is the expert in international resilience. She's the former head of executive leadership development at Nike, global leadership development at Cigna, and founded Resilience Leadership, where she serves as the chief resilience officer, CRO. I love, I love that reference, CRO. Uh, she's done over a decade of research on resilience, and it gave birth to the empirically-based framework the five practices of particularly resilient people for executive coaching, for top team effectiveness, high potential leadership. Um, she's a coach for executives, athletes, musicians. She gives inspirational keynote addresses. I mean, we are blessed and honored to have Dr. Taryn Marie with us today. So let's welcome her to the 2020 Perspective. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, yay! I'm so happy to be here. Oh my gosh, what an amazing introduction. Well, it's you. It's the real deal. That's it's Aww. all about you. That's yeah. so nice. That was so beautiful. I'm 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 glowing. <laughs> well, I'm well, having we have a, a track record moment. of excellence. It's, it's <laughs> I'm having a fangirl moment that you're on our um, podcast today. So really, again, pre appreciate you spending some time to talk with us about resilience and it goes just hand in hand with failure. So we thought this would be a perfect. Hand in hand, hand in hand. We're, we're all having a, a, a fangirl or a fan, fan <laughs> boy moment because I, I love what you're doing 
with oh, resilience okay. and failure. No, it's so important. It's so important. And, and, you know, even in the midst of a pandemic, which is just sort of like, it feels sometimes like a sort of an epic failure, right? Because <laughs> not, not, not of our own failure, right? But just like sort of a failure of like, infrastructure and expectation and a failure of like the control that we actually thought we had and 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 so I love that you're out there really like giving people this like space and and safer place to talk about failure because that allows us to normalize the fact that like everything doesn't always work out oh yeah you just took the word right out of both of our mouths. That's, that's really our goal. When Dan and I got together to, to, we, you know, thought partners and friends and accountability buddies, and we were like, are we just failing a lot more than (laughs) other people or are other people doing this too? And that kind of became the birth of helping normalize failure by talking about it and, and talking about what we learn from it and using that as a way to grow and move forward instead of, you know, this dirty, shameful thing that you try to hide and, and keep, you know, in the closet behind you. Yeah. 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 So to kind of, kind of like set us up and especially for our listeners and people who are tuning in live, please feel free to join the conversation chat on, uh, on Facebook, just drop some comments in and we'll, we'll answer your questions live, but all right. In your world, what would you, what would you succinctly define resilience as? What, what, what is this word resilience to you? Oof. I'm so glad you asked that question. It's so fun. <laughs> so let, let me just like, if I could tee it up just for a second. Mm-hmm. So um, spoiler alert, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big dork. Um, and uh, so I, I grew up in a household where on one side of our living room, we had this like set of encyclopedia botanicas, right? Mm-hmm. If you were born, if you were born after 1995, just like see me later for <laughs> encyclopedias, stereos, butter churns, like any kind of obsolete item, I'll shed light. Um, so on, on one, which so on one side of the living room, we had a set of encyclopedia botanicas, you know, all alphabetized from my um, my father's, from my paternal grandparents, and on the other side of the living room, we had this like ginormous like Webster's dictionary mm-hmm. right with the, dictionary. Cutouts, the with the little cutouts with the little cutouts with the little like finger like you know mm-hmm. like s was its own one but like xyz i think like they all shared a little cutout together mm-hmm. so i grew up with this idea that anything that i wanted to know about the world you know sort of pre-google and the internet i could look up in our living room and so when i looked up resilience it was this really circular definition that I did understand. It was like resilience was to be resilient or to demon, you know, to be resilient and resilient was to like demonstrate resilience. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't get it. Right? <laughs> what does it mean? What does it mean? You know? And so, and so then I started to see these definitions over the years, which were like, you know, to, to quickly recover, to bounce back. And when I really thought about to overcome failure, right. And when I really thought about this language that was being used, I was like, okay, maybe it's just me, but I've never overcome a failure. You know, I've never overcome a challenge. Like I've, Mm. you know, I've, I've walked, (laughs) 
I've limped, I've crawled, I've army crawled, you know, <laughs> under the barbed wire of the challenge. But like, for me, it hasn't been like, oh, like take mm-hmm. that challenge, right? It's <clears throat> been this like kind of very iterative process. And I thought also when I faced a challenge or a change or a complexity, like I never bounced back, you know, I never went back to the way that I was before. It was like with an integrated understanding of the Mm -hmm. world, I was forever and fundamentally changed. And so I started, so I love that you're asking this question because in part, you know, I found it so hard to understand what resilience is or, or was, and that was part of the impetus that made me want to study this human experience. And so mm. the definition for resilience is, is really simple. And I think it's really powerful, which is to allow ourselves to effectively address challenge, change, and complexity in a way that allows us to be enhanced by that experience, not diminished. Mm. Mm. That's so growth mindset. That's so like develop and and grow and uh, you become stronger because of it, not weaker. I love that. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's so much, there's so much that we could say about that, you know, just briefly, I'll, I'll also say, you know, sort of in, in architecture, right. There's this concept of like negative space. Right. And so it's Mm -hmm. about not what's there, but also what's not there in architecture And for me, that also exists in this definition of resilience, because the definition for me is as much about what is in this definition as what is not in this definition, right? Mm -hmm. So what's not in the definition are things like quickly recover, you know, bounce back, um, those types of constructs that we have typically associated with being resilient that actually either don't allow us to kind of harness the full complement of resilience because we think, well, if I didn't go back to the way that I was before, if it didn't happen as quickly as I thought, then maybe I'm not resilient. So it's the definition for me and for so many of us is powerful because of its simplicity and what's there, but also because of the constructs that are not there that I think detract from this notion of resilience. Yeah, yeah that's, that's I think that a lot of people they think, I'm going to call them common misconceptions, what you said, the negative space. Um, because I'm thinking that a lot of people see this word resilience, and we've seen it a lot more these days. I'm sure people are knocking on your door even more than they used to be um, in the last year. And I think that people look at it and think that it means, um, you know, po- more of like positive psychology or not even positive psychology, but just coming back, kind of like moving forward, picking yourself up by your bootstraps when really it's almost like kind of languishing in the the failure or the setback in order to understand it and use it to enhance your, your life and move forward effectively. It's not glazing over it. It's really like relishing it to move mm-hmm. forward. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would, I love that. And I would say, you know, I love the, the word of like common misconceptions. We typically call them myths. Like these are like myths of resilience, right? The myth is that you bounce back. The truth is that you bounce forward, right? Right. The myth is that, you know, it needs to happen quickly. You know, the truth is that it may take some time. You know, the myth is that it's passive as in, you know, time heals all wounds. You know, the truth is that it's more, 
you know, akin to what Andy Warhol said, which is, you know, time changes things, you know, but you have to change them yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes I think, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult for us to relish these moments. You know, it's, it's really like, for me and for so many people that I've interviewed, you know, it's like the, we don't appreciate the full complement of this moment and how it's impacting us until mm-hmm. we're sort of on the other side of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes it's really difficult to relish in those moments. And sometimes the best I think we can do is like marinate in that moment, right? Or allow ourselves to kind of, you know, steep in that moment, like a tea bag, you know, we're, we're in hot water. And so that challenge is like steeping us. Right. And we get to like come into the full compliment. It's so hard. So hard. So hard. I, whenever I'm having a challenge or I'm in the midst of a failure, which has happened a lot in the last year and a half, um, I, I try to pause and ask myself, not why is this happening to me, but how is this happening for me? Thank you. And so I'm curious to know what do you do when you are when you are being steeped, when you're the tea bag in the hot water, what do you do to stop and, and kind of relish in the moment to say, how am I like meant to get through this? Or how do I see the light at the end of the tunnel? What what are some things that you do or that you recommend for people to do? Yeah. So a couple of things on that. So the first thing is I love what you're saying, Alicia, and I actually say something very similar to people. I think it's very wise, which is just that change of language around, um, instead of saying, why is this happening to me? Asking, why is this happening for me? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it flips the script. Aw, that's a snap stand. Snap yeah. <laughs> that's all Alicia, that's all Alicia. Um, you know, it flips the scripts, right, from us being sort of like the passive recipients of this challenge to, oh, like, how how might I be being formed, right, on this journey? And then we start to have a different conversation with ourselves. The second thing is, I'll just sort of say this and then share some strategies. Um, I've researched resilience for a decade and a half, and there are, like, a lot of moments <laughs> especially in the recent year where I've gotten, I've gotten it totally wrong. Like, (laughs) like, I, like I may as well have taken like all of my research and like crumbled it up and just like thrown it in the fire, like, or in the wastebasket. Like I've had some real raw moments where it's like all of the negative thinking, all of the limiting beliefs, all of the like fixed mindset, you know, hearkening back to what you said earlier, Dan, about Carol Dweck's growth mindset. So the first thing to know is like resilience is not synonymous with perfection. You know, I'll say, I'll say that again for the other card carrying perfectionists like myself. <laughs> a little louder for the kids in the back. A little louder for the kids in the back, right? Like resilience is not synonymous with perfection. It's just trying to do it a little bit better every time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting. I, um, have read a couple of books about about Mount Everest, um, and one of them is be- it's a beautiful book by John Krakauer called Into Thin Air. Mm-hmm. And um, you know what was striking for me? I do not want to climb Mount Everest, by the way, in case you're wondering. But you know what was striking for me is when I thought about the climb to Mount Everest. Right in my mind, I thought, oh, like you climb, you know, you start at base camp and then you climb to the top and then you come back down. And then in reading that book, what I realized was you started base camp and then you go to the first camp, right, Dan? And then what do you do? You go 
back down to base camp, right? Mm -hmm. And then you go to first camp and then second camp and then from second camp, you go back to first, right? And so on and so forth until you reach the summit. And that's been that sort of process of how you scale the largest peak in the world has been so instructive for me because then when I like get to that kind of first camp and then something happens and I find myself like back at base camp, I'm like, oh, you know, progress is not linear, right? You don't climb the largest peak in the world through a linear, you know, through the, through a linear process. So, you know, I've had all of the, I, I definitely don't get it right all of the time. I will not let you speak to any of my family members so that they can tell you what's happened. It's just, yeah. But um, the, the first, you know, I think the first thing is recognizing in that moment, right? When that challenge shows up, when that moment of change, when that, you know, when those threads of complexity emerge in our lives, or all three, right, you know, candidly at the same time, the, the first thing is to recognize that we have a choice, right? Mm -hmm. Like Victor Frankl said, you know, between stimulus and response, you know, we have a choice. Mm -hmm. And what our sympathetic nervous system would have us think when we get into that threat state, right, is that we only have fight, flight, or freeze, to choose from. And what our parasympathetic nervous system will tell us is we actually have more choices, you know, there. So the first thing to recognize is that we have a choice about how we react, right? right between that stimulus and response. And that's very powerful because once we recognize we have a choice, then we become the active author in our response. Can mm -hmm. I ask you a question then please so some of the thing about the, the the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system is that your body has been built over millennia to have those autonomous automatic responses to preserve you know staying alive and hot stoves and such and i think one of the things that's a real challenge for people who are learning resilience and kind of getting started with it is recognizing when those automatic things are actually happening. Yeah. So I'm curious if you have a, a lens or a litmus test to identify when things feel like you don't have a choice, how do you actually realize you do have a choice? Yeah. I think what we might be starting to talk about here, and it's really exciting if we are, is, is triggers. Yes, triggers. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I, I love that. So I would define it. I would define a trigger, right, as something, you know, an experience, largely from our past, right, that has some emotional valence around it, right, whether that's um, disappointment, whether that's the feeling that we failed in that moment, whether it's um, trauma associated with that, right. Um, and the, the first step you know, is to recognize our triggers, mm. right? Um, because what happens neurologically, right? Like our amygdala, as so many of us know, right? Like that is the sort of mission control for our emotions, mm -hmm. you know? And, and our amygdala is kind of, let's see, like back, back here, right? In our brain, right? And then we have like our frontal and our prefrontal cortex, which is here, right? And what happens is, you know, when we start at the, the base of our spinal cord, right? Those are really the automatic kind of like 
you know, keep breathing, keep mm -hmm. the heart pumping, you know, all that stuff. And then as you move kind of around your skull, right, this part of your brain, this is the most evolved, right? Your, your cortex and your prefrontal cortex. So your amygdala is like 50% of the way to like your full evolution, right? So when things get caught in, because of a trigger, it's gotten caught in our amygdala with an emotional response before it gets to travel to the prefrontal cortex for us to like respond to the thing rationally, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing to do is to recognize or to have a sense of what are our triggers? Like what are the things that have happened in the past, you know, that, that set us off that are going to be sensitive issues that, you know, when it, when an experience looks like that thing from our past that we might respond automatically as opposed to, um, you know, thoughtfully, right? So, so for me, like, I've been in a lot of relationships um, where people have, like, yelled at me, talked to me in abusive ways, um, put me down, that kind of thing. And so if I, if I, I know. They're meanie heads. No, they were, they were mean. And, you know, and, and they are, or were like probably deal, dealing with their own triggers. Right. I mean, that's, you know, that's sort of the thing, right? Like hurt people, hurt people, you know, mm -hmm. and, and healed people, heal people. Right. So when we do our own work, it's not, it's not selfish. It's, it's work that has ripple effects, right? Because when we start to heal these triggers or recognize these places where we feel like we failed or we didn't do as well as we wanted to, then in beginning to heal these places within ourselves, we don't respond, you know, in a way that's outsized or aggressive to others, right? And, and we create more positive interactions. So, you know, I had a, an incident the other day where I felt like, you know, my, my fiance was upset about something and he was sort of just like venting about the thing that he was upset about, but I heard it in my head as like, he was coming at me. He was mad at me. I disappointed him. I did something wrong. Right. So then I just like had this like sort of automatic, like, you know, um, holler back situation. Is that, is that still a thing? Oh, definitely still a thing. We got it. We're the only ones who matter right now. Yeah, we're, we're with you. Um, and, and so now I get to like sort of add that to my list of like triggers and 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 really plan for now, okay, when he or someone else is saying these types of things, how can I find more space before that stimulus and that and my response to have a thoughtful response versus just reacting. But the, the first step is to recognize what those places are. And if you don't know what those places are, they will emerge, you know, in our lives. We say like, ooh, I didn't know I had that place, but I do. So now I'm gonna work on that, right? It's no, no shortage of things to work on. And then to start to plan for it, right? So, so the next time that that happens, or the next time that something looks like that, here's how, I'd like to do it differently. I will stop. I will take a breath. I will ask a question mm -hmm. for clarification. This is, you're, you're saying this just so beautifully. I love the way you're saying it. When, when I try to say something similar to what you're explaining to the people that I coach, I typically ask them to, you know, when 
they have a negative reaction to something or they respond in a way that's maybe uncharacteristic to themselves to pause and try to recognize that that didn't feel good, that it didn't settle with them well. They feel anxious. They feel maybe ashamed that they reacted, you know, maybe harshly or negatively, whatever it is. And then to do what you're saying is to kind of assess what is my, I call it bookending. What is the best, like my best version? How would I respond in that way? And what is my worst self? How would I respond in that way? So next time it does happen, you have like, your go-to tool in your toolbox of how to respond. And I think that I'm not going to, I mean, I'm just speaking off the top of my head. I'm not thinking like any research base right here, but I have a thought that a lot of people, they just quickly, we're going through life so quickly and we're just, just moving and we're responding to fires and we're doing whatever is catching our attention right now. And we don't take enough time to stop and recognize those triggers and even build in space to think about what they could be and how they could emerge. And we're just, we're just shooting from the hip all over, whether it's work or in our personal life. And then we don't take a moment to think about how can we reach our best self by stopping and kind of reflecting. Yeah. I, I love how you said that, Alicia. It's absolutely beautiful. And, you know, research is important, you know, um, I also think, I also believe that, you know, we are the instrument in many ways, like, like we are the, the tool or the instrument through which, you know, mm -hmm. we each individually experience life. And so sometimes we don't need a whole lot of research to say like, that did not work. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I love it because we're talking about failure. You know, I think of failure, failure can be a really like charged word, right? And so I think of failure as like stuff that happened in my life that did not work, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it can be anything from like an interaction to like giving into a trigger. I, and I'm so in agreement with you, Alicia, because the times when I go back and I really think about what are the moments and I reflect on what are the moments where I was not my best self? Mm -hmm. It was because I was moving too fast. Yes. It was because I didn't get enough sleep. It was because I didn't engage in my meditation practice that day. It was because I was stressing about my to-do list and trying to answer emails and having a conversation at the same time. And, and I was moving too fast. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore, you know, I didn't take the breath between stimulus and response to be my best self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, life is moving quickly all the time. And even though we're, most of us are still remote or even more virtual, um, it seems as though it's we're allowing ourselves to multitask and to do all the things and life is not slowing down at all. So more people should listen to this podcast. And <laughs> at least right. it'll all, all exist so people can like go back and be like, oh, they've been spitting truth for a while. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, one of the things I was talking about with my team today is um, the sort of like confluence, right, of things like worlds colliding, right? So I think the recent numbers in the U.S. are that uh, three million women have left the workforce since the pandemic has started. Uh, and so, you know, what we're seeing is this like idea, I did not come up with this word and I do not know 
to whom to associate this word with, so I apologize for not correctly citing my source. But what we're starting to see is this idea of like a she session, um, whom a woman on my team, Jane Fish, made me aware of this word. I'll cite her as a source, a secondary source. And so this idea of like a she session, right, where the pandemic has, um, it looks like in sort of an outsized way, you know, impacted women's ability to sustainably remain in the workforce, mm -hmm. right? And in part, that's because we've had this like tremendous confluence of things that are usually separate, in, in my opinion, that have collided, right? So I had, when the pandemic started, I had a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, right? Um, now they, now my sons are six, almost seven and nine. And so I was very much in the trenches of virtual learning and it was mm -hmm. virtually impossible to be able to work in the context of my business. And we can talk about all the failures that happened there early on in the pandemic, but it was virtually impossible to work a full-time job and to support them in their virtual learning and to provide mm -hmm. the, the sort of like oversight and childcare that they yeah, need yeah. at those ages. Whereas, um, and you know, you may be parents as well, right? Like, whereas, before it was like they'd be at school or they'd be at daycare. And so I was able to kind of like separate out the world of like career and parenting because I had the privilege of being able to afford childcare with the pandemic, that's all gotten, you know, squished mm -hmm. together. And so what we find, you know, to your point is oftentimes there's a lot less time for that reflection you know, or we start moving, mm -hmm. you know, too fast. Um, I'll say one more thing and kind of land this plane and turn it back to you too. But, you know, something really interesting that I've seen is, you know, people are saying like, gosh, I don't have a commuter anymore, but I've, I've never had so little time, you know, sort of what gives. And I've started to see this idea of like people actually reinstituting their commute, you know, maybe not exactly, but after they finish the workday, they'll go out and walk around the neighborhood, you know, or they'll do that before they start their workday in the morning, because what we're missing, you know, we're, we're not missing like fighting traffic on the highway and stuff, but, but what we're missing is that reflective time that might have occurred in the process of our commute or other things that were built into the structure of our lives before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, you're you're so right. I was doing some sessions for the the company that I work for for our leaders earlier on in the pandemic about how to thrive and survive in the workplace, which I'm sure a lot of people were doing. But one of them was to have a mental commute. So this time that we had in the morning to even just drive or ride the train, where you might listen to a podcast or read a book or have that moment of thoughtless thought where you let the, the thoughts connect in your brain and that's when you come up with creative solutions and ideas to reinstate that time in some way to take a walk to you know put your computer in a different room until you know you have a certain time that you have to log on whatever it is to give yourself that time to truly reflect because we now we're just working on both ends of the day and we're not taking that breath and also, I'll say one other point before we throw it to Dan, but um, 
you know, the, the piece about you having this virtually impossible, you know, set up with having your kids at home and working, I can, I don't have any children. I have a dog who's like my child, but I mean, my colleague is, I tell her all the time, I commend her because she has four kids school age. We have the same role and she has, you know, a mother-in-law she helps take care of. And she has a husband who has his own law practice. So it's not like he can kind of, you know, take off either. How in the world do you do all of this? It is truly such a challenge. So this idea of the sheet session spot on. And so I'm curious, and I know we'll get into this, about how to help people be resilient, just everyday people who are just trying to be them, their best self. How do we help them instill resilience practices in their day-to-day? -day? So Dan, what I mean, that, that's like that? such a layup. For, for our guest here, because yeah. I think that there's a lot of, um, there's people who come into the world with different types of interpretations of resilience, as, as you kind of discussed before. And I think we see how people grapple with quarantine and COVID in lots of different ways. And I would posit that as a society, we're still dealing with the baggage of a gendered workplace, which is causing an undue impact on caregivers, which tend to be women, but that, that's conversation for another day. Um, but, you know, there's people at different levels. There's people who maybe haven't even thought anything out about resilience at all. Some people who maybe have been doing it or maybe they didn't realize they've been actually practicing some of these kind of five techniques that you've identified for highly resilient people. And then there's people out there like one of our guests who are going to be we're going to be producing her episode in a little bit um, who are pros at the resilient game and curious what could take it maybe to the next level. So don't know anything, know a little, and know a lot. What would you say are some habits or techniques that people can put into their own lives? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, picking up on our conversation around, first and foremost, recognizing that you have a choice about how you respond, you know? So so often, we also hear people say, um, I did that because I didn't have a choice, right? And so even like that, that language that exists in the English language, banishing that and getting to a place where we're able to say, you know, I didn't have a choice or I didn't have good, instead of saying I didn't have a choice, saying I didn't have good choices, right? Or I made a choice even though I didn't have good choices. That mm -hmm. allows us to empower ourselves around behavior. And so what happened after my like encyclopedic and Merriam-Webster dictionary incident is that I went on to um, graduate school and I did a fellowship in neuropsychology and a really interesting thing was happening with our uh, brain injury and spinal cord injury patients. So I was you know, seeing people and their families right when they kind of had their injury in that acute or um, intensive care phase. And then I was primarily working in our outpatient clinic where there were people that had been coming into the outpatient clinic for months and not uncommonly years. And so I would look at their file, right, in the medical system and then sort of look at them. And it was like the prognosis that we had, we as the healthcare system long before I got to the fellowship had given them was often inaccurate. You know, so people were doing better than we thought or not as well as, as we thought, but rarely were we sort of hitting the target. And that was really fascinating to me for two reasons. One, I wanted to understand how we could give people and their family members more accurate information at the time of, of when an injury occurs like that, because that's such a critical time 
for people to really get to conceptualize like what's going to happen next. And secondly, I wanted to understand, okay, if we thought someone was going to do really well after an injury and they didn't, why not? Or if we didn't think someone was going to do so well and they did, how did that happen? Right. And so after combing through all this data, you know, the, the short version of the story is that we found over and above any other factor, right? Um, having access to reliable transportation was the difference between living independently after an injury and living in an assisted care facility. So if you had a vehicle or a family member or a friend had a vehicle and they could drive you or you could drive, that would allow you or the patient, right, to get to their appointments and to get the services that they need to create a better rehabilitation outcome. And so when I left my fellowship, I was still thinking about what I learned around resilience. And I thought, okay, we're not all going to have brain injuries or spinal cord injuries. And like, you know, thank goodness for that, because that's a, that's a tough road, right? Mm -hmm. And as humans, you know, it's inevitable that we all will face challenge, we all will face change, we all will face complexity. So in those moments, what will our version of reliable transportation be, right? Which is mm. essentially your question, Dan, like, what are those, what are those things that we can do that we know makes a difference that we know creates a more resilient and positive outcome. And so I started uh, interviewing people about this, you know, collecting qualitative data where I asked people to think about a time where they had experienced a significant challenge, a change, or a level of complexity, and what did they do in that moment that they felt like was a real difference maker for them. And so now having interviewed hundreds of people and collected thousands of pieces of data, what that's given rise to, and, and you alluded to this, Dan, is the five practices of particularly resilient people, mm-hmm. or the five things that any of us can do, kind of key learned behaviors in those moments, right? Rather than fight, flight, or freeze, you know, to expand our resilience. And so that that model, those five practices, they're actually, they're actually pretty simple things, you know, and they're things that a lot of us are already doing to some degree. So the first practice is the practice of vulnerability. Now, when I, you know, saw that in the data, I was like, oh, shoot, (laughs) because vulnerability is one of those things like it's it's not necessarily easy, you know, for everyone. Um, The way that vulnerability came through in terms of how people had leveraged vulnerability to be more resilient was that people allowed their inside self, right? Like our thoughts, our feelings, and our emotions to be seen on the outside, right? And so why would that be important when we face challenge, change, and complexity? Well, it's important because if folks don't know that there's something wrong, that there's like stuff going down that we need help with, then we don't necessarily get the support, right? That that we need, right? So, I mean, I'm... I'm convinced the three hardest words to say in the English language are not, I love you, right? It's, I need help. <laughs> you know? I think those are the three hardest you know, lang- words for us to say in the human language or the English language. And so probably the human language, actually. Um, we'll have to look at that culturally. But um, so this idea of like allowing ourselves to be vulnerable enough to in some ways say, I need help, Mm -hmm. right? And 
to allow our inside self to be seen, you know, on the outside. In in psychology or marriage and family therapy, we call this congruence, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a, a lifetime uh, is a lifetime pursuit, right? To allow our inside self to be as congruent as possible with our outside self and to get those, you know, to match up. So the first practice is is vulnerability. You know, in short, letting people know that you need and want their help and that stuff is going on. Yeah, we are um, big fans of uh, Brene Brown on the 2020 perspective. And we know that she talks quite a bit about uh, vulnerability, about empathy, about um, congruence as well. So I'd say the, the research definitely is is corroborated out, out there in the world. <laughs> um, so you know, okay. Step number one, vulnerability. Got it. What, number one, what about the others? Yeah. So what I'll just say about that real quick is if we know that luminary people like Brene Brown are talking about vulnerability and, you know, now others, and, and I'm taught, I found it as well in my research on resilience. It's this idea of like, okay, well, why aren't we all living these like fabulously vulnerable lives if we know it's good for us? Right. And so I also wanted to know that question. And so what I found is this this kind of idea of like the vulnerability bias, which is this belief. I'll use you as an example, Dan, if that's all right. I'm ready. I am on the failure podcast. Oh, you are indeed. You are indeed. (laughs) Um, So this idea that, Dan, when you tell a story, right, that's vulnerable or you tell a resilient story, like your currency kind of goes goes up in my mind, right? I think, wow, like here's Dan and he's got this great podcast. And then he just shared the story about this challenge he faced and resilience and, you know, wow, you know? And and then when we turn that around and we think, okay, well now it's my turn. Now it's Taryn's turn to tell her resilient story. I, even though you, your currency call it kind of rose in my eyes, right? I worry that I will be diminished mm. when I tell the truth about who I am. So that's the bias, right? The fear that even though Dan's enhanced, I will be diminished. And it really kind of, it really goes to three core things, right? That don't, that sort of block our vulnerability. And I call them the three L's. So this idea that if people really see us, if they really know who we are in a vulnerable way, people won't like us, they won't love us, and they might leave, right? Mm. The three L's. Yeah. Yeah. That hits you hard. So, you know, vulnerability is a a cornerstone for resilience Mm -hmm. and it's this really active practice of facing the fears that we have associated with the vulnerability bias that we will be diminished or worse. People may not love us. They may not like us and they might leave. Mm -hmm. So feels very human in a way because it's showing this is where you can hit me and it hurt the most. And that type of vulnerability is easily exploited by, you know, ill, ill will pointed at you. I mean, all you have to do is say, you know, I'm conscious about my weight for all you need is someone to take that and just throw it back in your face when you're, when they want to hit you low. And no one wants to give up that advantage of them not knowing your soft spots. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's two things that are important, I think, for us to remember and, and for your listeners to remember. One is uh, 
people need or get to earn the right to hear our stories of resilience or our stories of vulnerability. Um, it's, it's not something like if we have not resolved that story and have sort of a strong foundation of who we are and, and the sense that we made of that, if we're in the middle of that mm-hmm. story, then mm-hmm. people need to have earned the right to get to come along, you know, come alongside of us to the greatest degree possible. And the second piece of that is to remember that if people do not respond well to our resilient story or our moment of challenge, change, and complexity, that we allow that to be a reflection or an indicator of their capacity to be with us at this time, not our own worthiness. Mm. Wow. Wow. Okay, so there's some truth bombs dropping today. There's some truth bombs here. (laughs) I'm trying to think, as you say this, I'm trying to think of a time when I was vulnerable and maybe I regretted it or I, the person that I was communicating with maybe hadn't earned that and I felt, you know, shamed or maybe I was less likely to be vulnerable in the future. I can think of one. I can think of one, but I, I don't want to share it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not being vulnerable. Um, I, I accept you. And if you trust us, we'll be here. And as well, every other listener who may be tuning in live right now or listening to the recording. So no pressure. Oh my gosh. Well, it, it has to do with one of my parents and I was vulnerable in sharing this thing that I thought that I had to put myself out there and I had, um, thought I had done well. Like I was thinking I was like younger. I thought I was going to get like a pat on the back. And instead I was like, kind of like, Oh, well that's not that big of a deal or that's not that impressive kind of response. And I was like, Oh gosh. Okay. Well better luck next time. Um, but I say that this is me being vulnerable. I won't go into all the details, but when you were talking earlier about these triggers and how we have to kind of take take a step back and and reflect and think about how these might show up, you know, from childhood or our adolescence or whatever into, you know, our adult world or into the working world. I have done a lot of that, you know, personally, and I always try to help, you know, others around me do the same thing, whether it's through coaching at work or talking with a friend that's confiding in you, just because we are so affected by all types of relationships and all sorts of past experiences that it it only behooves us to, you know, kind of like stare at them in the face and think about how that might impact us being, you know, a resilient, successful, happy, healthy adult. So, okay. I'm done with being vulnerable for right now. Can we go to the next one? How did that feel, Alicia? <laughs> it feels... Like I can only see you two right now, but it feels like there are a million people staring at me. And I hope that out of anyone watching this or listening to this thinks about something that they might feel insecure about or something that, um, you know, might be shameful and hear me share my like very quick, vague example and say, you know what, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Like I have gone through an experience where maybe I was embarrassed or prohibited me from being open in a relationship or at work or applying for that job or whatever it is. And they take it and they feel empowered. Hmm. Well, that's, that's beautiful. And I wonder, Alicia, if we could 
visualize uh, myself and Dan and every other person that ever listens to this podcast and hears that disclosure. And not only does that happen in their lives, but everyone who hears this is holding you in their, in their vision, right? Whether they can see you or in their mind's eye and they're reflecting back to you, Alicia, that you are good enough. Oh, this is going to be the first episode that I cry on. So (laughs) I love that. I mean, that's something I personally have been working on is this idea of worthiness, both professionally and personally. And, um, you know, I think I'm not alone in that. I think I really think that a lot of people are, maybe they don't consciously recognize that that is their, the underlying, you know, root of what their, their different triggers are kind of stemming from. But I think that we're all kind of, not all, but many of us are dealing with that. Am I good enough? Am I worthy enough for this thing, this person, this job, this opportunity? And, you know, we all are. So I'm, I'm curious, I know we're like running low on time, but I I did want to make sure to ask about um, how you're capturing this in you're offering a course on some of these, these tactics and, and techniques. And could you tell us a little bit about this course that you're, you're building out? Yeah, absolutely. So in your, in your very kind introduction, you know, you talked about my time at Nike as head of executive leadership development there and Cigna global leadership development and worked with a variety of actors and actresses and athletes and working with a variety of musicians right now doing resiliency coaching, which is really exciting. And I started to think, you know, how, how can I share this with more people? So my goal for my myself and for my organization, Resilience Leadership Institute, is to positively impact the lives of 1 billion people by 2030. So just setting small goals over here, no big deal. And we want to impact people's lives through positivity, through hope, through healing, through inspirational leadership, you know, and we see the five practices of particularly resilient people, one of which we talked about vulnerability, which is a very powerful and kind of cornerstone concept. We see those as, as being the vehicle. And I thought, okay, well, how, how can I bring this so many more people have access to it? And what we came up with was a book and an online course. And so we're going to be launching our online course in the next couple of weeks here, which is really exciting, um, where I'll be able to work with people, you know, synchronously, synchronously and asynchronously through the online course to actually teach the five practices of particularly resilient people, the myths and truths of resilience, why we face challenge, and, um, you know, to get to reach more people and share these concepts um, of resilience with the world. Yeah, I want to say that. I And I saw that you you shared with us the, the link beforehand. So I dropped that into the comments of this, this Facebook Live and it'll be on the show notes for this episode recording so people can pre-register and get in there the crack of dawn and be on the bleeding edge of resilience, which it's, I don't know, it sounds like a pretty cool place to be. 
I like the bleeding edge of resilience. I'm going to write that down and use it in something. That sounds great. <laughs> I love it. I wonder what it bleeds, like bleeds feelings, bleeds truth. I don't know. I feel like the metaphor could really go somewhere. Absolutely. The avant-garde of resilience on the front line. <laughs> <laughs> Postmodern resilience. We're just sitting, talk about boots. I don't know. Um, great. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to share with with the world through through our, our podcast or anything that's kind of top of mind with you? Yeah, you know, I um I I never plan what I'm gonna say in this moment. I look for what feels right to kind of come in or what wants to come through uh at this particular moment or for this particular audience. And and what was coming through for me when you asked me that question uh to wrap up our time together today is uh to invite, you know, both of you and to everyone who's listening. Uh, to embrace your fear, to uh, yeah, embrace 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 your fear. Um, we have this idea that fear is a bad thing, you know, that like, ooh, I feel afraid, so I'm so that so I'm not going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the really powerful concepts that has come through in this work on resilience is the idea that what scares us is sacred. Mm -hmm. And so one aspect of my background is that I grew up with a learning disability and that learning disability is dyslexia. So when I look at words, I really check them very carefully to make sure I'm reading it correctly. And what I found in sort of this gift of dyslexia is the word scared and the word sacred are essentially the same word just with the C in a different place. And I thought, what if in the wisdom of the English language, fear is not meant to stop us. Fear is meant to invite us. Fear is an invitation to say, how much do you want this? You know, as coaches, many coaches ask a question. They say, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And I think that's the wrong question or, or not the best question. I think the best question is to say, what would you do even if you could fail? That's so important to you that you wouldn't allow failure or fear to stand between you and pursuing this experience or this, this outcome. And so what I feel is important to share is to recognize that whatever scares you, at this moment may very well be the most sacred development experience you're meant to have at this time. And rather than thinking that you need to be fearless, to learn to fear less and to see fear as an invitation for your development and growth. That wasn't quotable. I, I don't even know what was. That's like tattoo worthy. I needed to hear that. I know that other people need to do that. I needed to hear that today more than ever. I mean, we have a podcast about failure, but there's something so important about hearing that message and the way that you phrased it to fear less instead of being fearless to truly fear less. I mean, that is key. Thank you for that. Very quotable on the wall quote moment. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining us. We're really honored that you were able to share some resilience with us today and hopefully everyone listening and watching now. Um, 
want to invite everyone to check out more with Dr. Taryn Marie at her website, www.resilienceleadership.com and subscribe to her newsletter, get in that pre-register boat and start learning some more uh, tactics of highly effective, resilient people. Resilient dance. I love it. Well, thank you again for joining us. Yes, Thank you you so much. It's been such an honor to be here with both of you. And I love the work that you're doing. It's incredibly powerful and important. Thanks to No BS Brass Band for the banging show music. Check them out at nobsbrass.com. And if you want to join any of our live shows, follow us on Facebook at the 2020 Perspective. That's 20 slash 20 Perspective. As always, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you can get the latest failures delivered right to your ears. And may your failures be spectacular.